We good? Yeah. Amen. That's more like it. Come on, otherwise I just get bored up here by myself if I'm just talking to myself. So join in with me, respond, and let's see what um, God wants to do through this word um, this morning. We had so much feedback to last week's message, and um, I love that because it means that people are taking the word and actually pulling it into practice during their week. And throughout the week, people said, oh yeah, there came a moment in my week where I had a decision or a thought, and I had a choice to go in the direction of the flesh or the spirit. And uh, if you're new to us this morning, we're in the midst of a a 12-part series um, that's all about the family values that make up who we are as family church. Every um, church, every family, any um, organization, corporation, whatever you want to call it, um, has a set of values that shapes who they are and the culture that they want to see in that specific um, family or group or whatever it is. And so it is with Family Church that um, we are a church like any other church, but we have a set of family values that says this is what we stand for. This is um, what's particularly important to us. This is what we want to underpin and shape our culture as a church family and a church community. And so there's 12 of those that are available on our Family Church um, website, family.church. But we've looked so far at three of them. And we've looked so far at the fact um, that we are Christ-centered. And you may remember on that week I said that these 12 family values aren't in any particular uh, order of importance, but actually that one is. Because Jesus comes first, amen. Jesus is center place. Jesus is above all things in all that we want to be, see, and do. And so we've talked about being Christ-centered. We've talked about being Bible-believing as a church community. And we've spoken about, as I said last week, that we are spiritual and all those messages are available for you to catch up on but today I want to move on um, to look at another value that we have as a church community a church uh, family but before I do that before we begin to open it up I want to ask you a question that really sets the foundation for what I want to speak on today and that question is simply this how would you define greatness how would you define greatness another way of asking that is What does a a great life look like to you? Or what does it look like for somebody to live a great life? And I ask that because it strikes me that there's so many people in the world today that if they were asked that question, how do you define greatness, their response would be along the lines of importance, status, wealth, how high up in the pecking order you are. We see Greatness is how much money we have in the bank, whether people know your name, how respected you are, and so on and so on and so on. You read any dictionary definition, and that's along the lines of what you're going to get. And so because of that, we have a generation of people today who will do whatever it takes to be seen. You see how many reality programs there are on TV today? We have this generation that will literally do whatever it takes to be seen, to be noticed, to be in that place of prominence and that's led to a whole generation where we have children in playgrounds who let's be real will pray pay the the bill physically mentally emotionally to do whatever it takes to be seen and to to be defined as great that's why we've got workplaces and boardrooms that resemble um, Alan Sugar's Apprentice program, if you've seen that, where, where even in a, in a corner shop, there's people who are fighting for prominence, people who want to be ahead of everybody else. That there's a lot of what we talked about last week, selfish ambition and jealousy in the boardroom and in workplaces, wherever that might be, because greatness has been defined 
by status, by how important you are, by how many people you can have serving what you want to do in life. And the reality is that actually nothing is new. I said this last week, nothing is new under the sun. The reality is that people have always thought this way. You go back to museums and generations, people have always thought this way. In fact, the people closest to Jesus thought this way too. Because they had been raised in a culture that was all about status. And that's why they had a picture of who the Messiah was going to be and how great he was going to be. And I want us to look at this account in Matthew chapter 20 just to set the scene this morning. So just turn your Bibles there if you've got them. Matthew chapter 20. And I want us to read what actually begins as a bit of a a funny account of people just being people. But ends in this moment of Jesus defining greatness in a whole new way. So Matthew chapter 20, we're going to begin at verse 20 this morning. It says, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, those sons of James and John. And kneeling down, she asked a favor of Jesus. What is it you want? Jesus asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at the left in your kingdom. Now, we've all heard, we've all experienced pushy parents, right? But this is like a whole new level in the, in the dynamic nature of this. Jesus, can you make sure that when you're in parallel, that, that one of my sons is here and the other one of my sons is here? But actually, it was James and John that were really pushing for this thing of prominence. Why do I say that? Because in Mark's version of this, in his gospel, it's actually James and John who ask the question. And even in this account, Jesus responds to James and John directly rather than going through the mum. So it's almost like the mum is the puppet in this moment. Go on, you ask him, mum. You go and ask him whether we can sit the right and the left of him in the kingdom. And Jesus responds, he says, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Jesus is talking about his upcoming suffering in this moment and they say we can verse 23 Jesus said to them you will indeed drink from my cup and if you know uh, what happens to James uh, and John in this moment James is eventually martyred John faces a whole load of persecution you can read about that in the New Testament but he's saying you do kind of know what it's going to be like to face my cup of suffering but to decide who sits at the right and to the left is not For me to grant. These places belong to those to whom have been prepared by my father. Verse 24. Now, when the ten other disciples heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And we can think that that's them being very noble, and the other ten. Uh, feel like what, what a ridiculous question and what a cheeky question to ask Jesus. But actually, the reason they were indignant is because they thought James and John had gone in there before them. We, we can look at this and think, oh, the, the ten disciples were being so good. No, 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 no. They were full of selfish ambition, just as every other disciple in that moment. And so they actually think James and John have been given permission, because of what Jesus says, to sit at his right and to his left. And so Jesus is like, calls them all together. So if you've ever had a moment, if you've got children or you work with children, where you've had to call them all together, this is like what Jesus had in this moment. Okay, disciple, come on in. And he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Now here's the thing, if that was a one-off, we could go, okay, the disciples were a little bit silly, a bit slow to catch on. Here's a whole other account in Mark chapter 9, verse 33 to 35, where Jesus has this conversation. It says, after they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? But they, I mean, these are grown men, but they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which one of them was the greatest. Can you imagine what it was like leading this team? Some of you are like, yeah, come to my workplace and you'll see. Here they are in this moment, arguing over which one was the greatest. Jesus sat down, which is what rabbis would do to teach, and he called the 12 disciples over to him and said this, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Jesus defines greatness in a whole new way way he says if you want to define greatness if you want to experience greatness in your life then you need to know what it is to serve you need to know what it is to be servant-hearted towards others and so at family church one of our 12 family values is that we want to be servant-hearted here's a tagline that goes with that serving one another and the purpose of God in our generation now, being servant-hearted, as we're going to see today, lines up with so much of what we've already spoken about. We've talked about being Christ-centered. Well, listen, Jesus was the epitome of what it was to be servant-hearted. He was a king, but he was a servant king. We talked about being Bible-believing. The Bible, read the Gospels, New Testament, it's threaded throughout this whole thought of being servant-hearted towards God and to the other people around us. We've talked about being spiritual well, do you know what? When you choose to be servant-hearted, what are you doing? As we spoke about last week, you're denying the flesh that is all about me, 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 me. And you're choosing to be led by the Spirit in such a way that you are servant-hearted to the people around you. So this is embedded in so much of what we've already looked at and communicated about. We are servant-hearted. Now, here's the thing. If anyone could have chosen to be served, it was Jesus, right? Think about it. Here is the Son of God. Here he is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Messiah, the whole nation has been waiting for for generations. Here he is. And yet he comes to the earth, this man that people have been waiting for, and this isn't what he chose to model. As I said, he wasn't just a king. He was a servant king. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Again, just laying the foundation. Philippians 2, 5 to 8. It says, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of what? Of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And everywhere you look, this is what Jesus taught and this is who Jesus was. And the greatest example of that in a practical sense, because Jesus didn't just talk theory, he showed us in practice, is found in John chapter 13, 3 to 9. And I want us to read this again this morning, probably a well-known passage to you. 
But I want us to pull out some stuff from it that I believe God wants us to know about what it is for us as a family and as individuals to have this family value of being servant-hearted. John 13, verse 3 says this. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Grab a hold of that. We'll come back to that in a moment. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I mean, he's not the sharpest knife in the, in the drawer, is he? Always. It's always Peter. He's just washed all these feet. And here is Peter watching this going on. And he gets to him, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answers, uh, sorry, Jesus replied, you don't realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. And then Simon goes the other direction. Then, Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Verse 12. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and you call me Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Okay, let's break this down for a moment. And the first thing that we need to understand is the context of where this is taking place. Because otherwise you read this and you think, this is a bit of a random moment in the Gospels, I don't really know what's going on. We have to understand the time and the culture and the context in which this moment takes place. That they have been walking in sandals on the dirty roads of Israel. And so what would happen is any time you went for dinner with somebody and you were around somebody's house, you would wash your feet before you ate. They would eat and recline at low tables, which meant that your feet would be in everybody's view. So you didn't want filthy feet when you were going to eat. So they would wash their feet before eating. Now the custom and the culture was this, that the host would, when you would come in, provide water for you to wash your feet. But not only water, they would also provide a servant who would be responsible for washing your feet. And so the disciples understood this, that in that culture, this was their culture, the lowest of the lowest, it was seen in that society, would be responsible for washing the feet of the guests in this moment. And so that's why as Jesus gets up and he begins to start washing their feet, they they, they start hesitating and, and Peter says, what on earth are you doing? Why? Because I think the moment dawned on them that actually as the teacher, as the rabbi, as their leader and their Lord, they should have been washing his feet. And yet here is Jesus, the Son of God, humbly doing what should have been done for him. Don't you reckon in that moment, that the irony may have dawned on them. That they've been having these squabbles about who's the great, no, I'm the better, no, I'm better. Well, Jesus, well, I'm the one who gave the food to Jesus when he, you know, multiplied it and fed the 5,000. Well, I'm the one who was there at the moment of transfiguration. And they're arguing about who's the greatest. And Jesus cuts across all of that and shows what it is to truly be great. And he ends with this these amazing words in this moment, verse 15. He says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. In other words, and he's not necessarily saying, you know, wash each other's feet, which is what people have narrowed this, this verse down to. He's saying, serve one another in 
love. Now here's a few things I want to pull out from this this morning. The first thing is this, that you will only serve others when you're secure in who you are. You will only ever be willing to serve other people around you when you are secure enough in your identity and who you are. Don't miss the significance of verse 3 in the context of all of this. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. In other words, he was 100% totally secure in who he was, his identity, and the love of the Father over his life. Again, the greatest is not the one with the most power. The greatest is not the one with a title. The greatest is not the one with a prestige. The greatest is the one who is so secure in their identity that it doesn't matter what they're called, it doesn't matter what people think of them, they will lower themselves to humbly wash the feet and serve and love those around them you see that's why at the risk of offending people which I just do every week just by talking that's why insecure people can't serve other people let me me just say this if you struggle to serve other people in the home in the workplace in the church, in your neighborhood, in the environment, whatever it might be. If you struggle with having a servant heart, then maybe, just maybe, we need to allow God to do something within us that works on our identity and our security of who we are. That's why you get people in the workplace, well, I'm not doing that, it's not on my job description. Well, I'm not doing that, it's beneath me. Well, I'm not doing this in the home because that person should do it. That's why, because there's a level of insecurity within us that causes us to not be able to serve other people around us in love. Jesus was so secure in who he was. It didn't matter what label they put on him. It didn't matter what title they tried to give him. It didn't matter how much they mocked him. He knew who he was and whose he was and was able to operate out of that. You'll only serve others when you're secure in who you are. The second thing we learn is this. Serving others isn't always glamorous. Have you discovered that? If you have ever had a baby and you've had to change their nappy, I mean, firstly, if you've had to give birth, I don't have experience on that, so I can't talk on that, okay? But, but if you've had to change a nappy, you're like, why? You do it. I mean, that, that is the very nature of being servant-hearted, right? Where you have to do unglamorous stuff. If you are committed to serving God and serving others, guess what? At times, it will cost you. At times, it will inconvenience you. At times it will mean doing things that you don't really want to do, but actually you know what it is to be servant-hearted. Now, think about the reality of this moment. Because so often I think we read the Gospels and we read these moments that we looked at earlier of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and we romanticize it and we make it so, so just angelic in that moment. Think about what he's doing. He is washing grown men's feet. Right? They have been walking for miles and miles. There will have been blisters on those feet. I'm certain that Peter, out of all of them, Peter probably had verrucas. Right? If anyone's going to have verrucas, it was Peter. And so here he is washing their sweat. That, don't tell me none of those feet stunk. Okay? And this isn't me being, but it's the reality of that. Otherwise, we romanticize, oh, Jesus washing, what a magical moment. Think about the reality of what he was doing in that moment. And he doesn't just do one guy's feet, he does all 12. And he's washing Judas's feet. Come on, think about the reality of that moment. He is washing 
Judas's feet. Actually, Judas probably had verukris as well. He's washing <laughs> Judas's feet in that moment, knowing what Judas is going to do to him. And yet he chooses to wash his feet as a sign of what it is to be a servant king. Jesus models to us that you can carry a servant heart and that will sometimes inconvenience you, but you can still do everything with joy. You see, that's why our family value isn't being a servant. Our family value is being servant-hearted because you can do things for God you can do things for other people. You can do things for the church and for the kingdom of God. But if your heart isn't in what you're doing, that's where you will lead to burnout, apathy, and resentment in what you're doing. Serving others isn't always glamorous, but you can always do it with joy when you carry a servant heart. It's not about the doing, it's the heart with which you do it. The third thing I see here is that a servant heart requires a humble mindset. Paul talked last week and Galatians 5, we talked about it last week, that the acts of the flesh are things like what? Selfish ambition. Isn't that what the world is characterized by? And yet the fruit of the Spirit, the results of being led by the Spirit, what are they? Kindness and gentleness and all these other things. You see, in this world, so much of what is regarded as greatness, so much of what you'll see on TV as greatness, is actually riddled with insecurity and pride. So much of what you'll see in the workplace as greatness is riddled with those things. So much of it is defined by selfishness. So much of it is self-serving, not other people serving. It's all about what can I get, not how can I serve. And Jesus steps into this world and shows us a different way, the kingdom way, the way of his kingdom, where serving God and serving others is actually a demonstration of how secure you are in your identity. Where serving others is defined by humility and kindness. The kingdom way that says, how can I serve? No matter what the cost, no matter how unglamorous it may seem, no matter how inconvenient I may end up. Jesus says, serve one another. And when you do, you will discover what a great life really is. Now when the New Testament church was opening and booming and all these things were going on there were people who would write and we know Paul and Peter would write these letters to the churches that would be read out in the church gathering so that they understood what was coming through now we need to understand that in the in the epistles these words of Jesus this heart of being servant-hearted isn't diminished it isn't done away with it's actually emboldened and underlined listen to these verses 1 Peter 4 verse 10 you're still with me this morning 1 Peter 4 10 says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to do what? To boast, to, to bring on pride, to say, look at me. No, no, no. To serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Galatians 5 verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Jesus came to serve, not to, to, to be served. Those who refresh others will themselves be refreshed. Amen? Those who are seven hearted will experience greatness. So I guess a good question at this point to ask, having laid all that foundation, all that fear, the good, point, good question to ask is this, how, where and who do I serve? Now that 
is a huge question and time doesn't allow us to give an exhaustive list but let me just give you a couple of highlights one of the places you can be servant-hearted is in the home begin in the home if you're married if you've got family around you if you're a, a child listening to this who's still living at home know what it is to be servant-hearted towards other people in your home because as we pastor so many of the marriage breakdowns that we deal with so many of the family breakdowns that we deal with happen because people don't know what it is to serve one another they're wanting to be served they're wanting to be noticed they're the ones who want all their needs met that person's not meeting my needs they're not understanding my needs let's flip that on its head so that we understand what it is to serve one another in the home You can be servant-hearted in the workplace. Oh, no, don't talk about the workplace. It's Sunday. It's my weekend. Give me some time off. No, 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 let's talk about the workplace. Because, you know, the truth is, in the workplace, what we do is nowhere near as important as how we do it. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter where you work. God's not looking at how much you earn. God's not looking at whether you got that promotion. God's not looking at what's in your job description. God's looking at the heart with which you serve in the workplace and the truth is you may not like your job it may be a stopgap to something else it may be that you love your job you love what you're doing but actually you don't like the people you work with or the pressures that you're under cause it to be difficult listen God's word shows us it's not what we do it's the attitude with which we do it we are to be our best for his glory amen regardless of the circumstances Ephesians 6 7 to 8 Work with enthusiasm, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. If you've got a boss at work that you really struggle with, do you know the great thing to do? Next time you look at them, see the face of Jesus in their face. And understand you're working not for him or her, but for the Lord. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. So what does that look like in the workplace? Here's a question. Are you just looking to get ahead or are you looking to serve other people? Are you, this is what I need to get done this week. This is my project I'm working on this month. Or are you actually looking to serve those around you in the workplace? Philippians 2 verse 3 to 4, primarily written for a church community, but it carries over into the heartbeat of who we should be in the workplace. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not look into your own interests, but each to the interests of others. This is a hard message because it's not easy to be servant-hearted. There's other ones that are like, yeah, it's easy to be this, it's easy to be that. It's not easy to be servant-hearted. It calls for us to lose something of ourselves in the interest of serving those around us. So challenge yourself in the workplace this week, if that's relative to you. Am I just looking out for my own interests? Am I just making this about me? Or can I serve the other people around me? So we can serve in the home. We can serve in the workplace. But as we bring this in this morning, I want to focus in as we close on us as a church community. Because this being one of our family values, that we are servant-hearted, serving one another, and the purpose of God in our generation, there's got to be a practical outworking to that, otherwise it's just theory. We need to know what it is to serve one another in love. Now, many of you know the words in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about the church being a body. 
And he talks about the body being made up of many different parts and that actually the body functions best when each part knows what it is and does its bit to make the health of the overall body function. I want to encourage you this morning, know what part you are and begin to play your part in this community called Family Church, haven't you? You may say, well, how, how do I know where I fit? My response to that is often this. It's not just a one-way ticket. Think about your natural giftings, your natural skill sets. Think about your spiritual giftings, what you have been spiritually given through the Holy Spirit. Think about your passions, but also think and have a heart to serve the kingdom of God. Because when you have a heart to serve, it won't just be about your natural or your spiritual giftings and your passions and your skill sets. It will be about the need. Now, now let me just give you a few practical examples to this it may be that some of you here have a spiritual gifting of prophecy let's just pick on that one for a moment because when we talk about serving one another it's not just about plugging in cables though that is an aspect to it but but there may be some of you who are spiritually gifted with with prophecy and Paul says in Romans 12 that we're to use our spiritual gifts to serve one another in love again something like prophecy and we've spoken about this before isn't about bringing attention to yourself or glorifying yourself it's actually about serving one another in love so if you have that gift my question is are you using it with people in the body of Christ, in accordance with how the Bible teaches us to use and handle a gift like prophecy. You may be somebody who, who naturally and spiritually is a phenomenal encourager. Are you using that gift of encouragement? Or do you just walk into this place on a Sunday or see people throughout the week and it's all about you? Or are you using that gifting that God has placed within you to be an encourager and to put God's courage into the other people around you? Be the encourager that Family Church haven't needs you to be. You may be great with youth. You may be great at listening. Use what God has given to you. You may be brilliant with tech. Some of you aren't. You may be, have the gift of hospitality. I include myself in that, okay, so it's fine. You may have a gift of hospitality and, and you use it brilliantly in the home. Are you actually serving the body of Christ with that gift that you've been given of hospitality? You may be a brilliant gardener. You may be great at DIY. You may be good with kids. You see, God can use your spiritual giftings. God can use your natural skill set and abilities. God can use your passion and your heart for his house to play a part in serving this family community called family church heaven so here's a challenge to you if you're not currently serving other people in this church community i want to encourage you to start doing so now that doesn't look like necessarily always joining a team i'm talking about serving one another in love that may look like do you know what this week i'm going to spy somebody out who's always, you know, for whatever reason, slow to get their coffee because they're doing something. I'm going to make sure that I go and get them a coffee and go and take it to them after service. Because we can make this something that it doesn't need to be. It's very practical sometimes. But other times, there's a, there's a question of, you know, could we be serving in one way or another on one of the teams that we do? One of the teams that causes us to function, not just Sunday, but throughout the week as well. If that's you, then speak to us about Get Involved. Fill out one of the Get Involved forms on, on the website or on the church app. But before we do any of that, let me just highlight a couple of things as we close. Serve from a place of security. Let me say that as your pastor, listen, serve from a place of 
security. That's why we don't just want to serve. We want to be servant-hearted. Amen? There's a difference within it. It's a subtle difference, but it's a massive one. Because we need to know what it is to serve out of a security and an understanding of our identity in Christ. You see, if you serve the church, I'm saying this as a pastor, if you serve the church because you think God will love you more, or you feel like, well, Stephen Cressy said I had to serve the church, so I'm going to serve the church. Or you feel like you really don't want to, but you just feel like you have to serve because everyone else is a super servant. So, do you know what? If you do it out of that place, let me tell you from experience, it will not be long. That is a ticking time bomb counting down to a moment in the future where you get hurt, offended, or burnt out. Because our identity has got to be rooted in who we are and not what we do. Our relationship with God comes first, and out of that, we serve those around us in the house of God. Here's the second thing as we close. Our servant heart requires a humble mindset that isn't afraid of being inconvenienced by putting others first. Let me say that again. A servant heart requires a humble mindset that isn't afraid of being inconvenienced by putting others first. Do you know... This church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. But this church is outworked weekly, daily, by servant-hearted people. And Cressy and I are so utterly grateful for that. We want you to know that. But we are so grateful for that. That throughout the week, and so much that we're not involved with, so much that people are doing throughout the week, there are connect group leaders who are just phenomenal. They open up their homes, they, they, they give of their time to supporting people and pastoring people and, and, and to teaching them more about the truth of God's word and to help them grow in their faith. There are people serving the community weekly in various different ways as we've already seen this morning. There are people who are daily praying for the needs of others. So you may think, well, I don't do much. No, no, if you're somebody who's committed to praying for the church, for the leadership, for everyone who's involved, for praying for the needs of other people, if you're on the prayer chain, you are doing a phenomenal service in the kingdom of God. There are people encouraging others throughout the week. And then we get to a Sunday, and there are people who, while some of you are still asleep, are here, getting this place ready for those who are yet to arrive. There are people, I've seen weekly, who are scrubbing the toilets and hoovering rooms in order to get this place ready for what God's going to do in a spiritual way. Way there are people brewing coffee, and some of you are like, "Amen." Yeah, that's like the most response I get. With that. There are people brewing coffee. Yes, Amen. Thank God for that. There's a worship team who aren't just playing for their own enjoyment. They are here prayerfully preparing to lead us into the manifest presence of God. There are people praying for those who are going to be there on the morning and in the evening. There is kids' church leaders and workers who have prepared throughout the week and then step out of this moment that we get to enjoy in the Word and go out and they go with. The kids and they love the kids and they laugh with the kids and they enjoy their time with kids and they encourage the kids and they teach the kids about the word of God in a way that's relevant and practical to them and then it all ends and we have our tea and coffee and we start to filter out home and there are people who stay behind and make sure that everything is cleared away and tidied away and cleaned up and we could go on and on and on why do they do it? To serve other people in love. 
to serve, number one, the kingdom of God. And secondly, to serve each other as Jesus has commanded us to do. And if you're one of those people, can I just say this? Jesus says, you are discovering and redefining greatness. And Kirsty and I are so incredibly grateful for you. And if you're somebody who hasn't yet jumped on board, you may be brand new to us as a church community. Listen, just sit and enjoy. Get to know us and get to know who we are and our family value and all that kind of stuff. But maybe for some of you, you've been here for a while now and this is your home. And if you're physically able and time allows it, then why not talk about how you can get involved in one way or another? And again, that doesn't necessarily mean practical lifting, doing of stuff. It's about us serving one another, not just Sunday gatherings, but throughout the week. We are servant-hearted, amen? Serving the purposes of God and serving one another in love. Let's just pray as we finish this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to gather, to worship, to be around your word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each and every single servant-hearted person who's not only served this morning, but at some point over the past few months, Lord, who's been involved in what you are doing through the vehicle called Family Church Haven to extend your community. Father, I just speak blessing over each and every single one of them. Father, I want to thank you for our incredible kids' church leaders and workers, Lord, who tirelessly just give their very best and just delight in just serving our kids and this generation that's rising up. Father, I thank you for each and every single one of them. Father, I thank you for every single person who hosts and smiles and celebrates as people come in through those doors. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every single person who's involved in one way or another. And Lord, as they discover what it is to be great, may you just bless them abundantly. Father, thank you that in the person of Jesus, you showed us a brand new way. You showed us, you redefined what greatness really is. And I pray that in the coming week, Lord, we would be challenged in the home. Are we looking to be servant-hearted in the workplace, with our neighbours, in our community, in our church family? Lord, would you challenge and encourage us, I pray, to be the servant-hearted people that you have called us to be. In your mighty name we pray, Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's go be servants. Amen. Servant-hearted people. And we're back here this evening.